0: This is Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. Way back in high school, I first read some stories by Charles Dickens and other Victorian authors. There's a trope in these novels that's pretty common. Debtor's prisons. Back in the 1800s, these were prisons for people who were unable to pay their debt. And they went further into debt while in prison because they had to pay for their own food and clothes. And until they paid off their debt, they could be held indefinitely. And I remember thinking at the time, how could these people ever pay off their debts if they're in prison? The logic just didn't make any sense. Now, today, the United States doesn't have debtors' prisons, at least not officially, anyway. More to the point, once in prison, people do have to pay for their phone calls to family members and pay for sanitary products and pay for extra food and clothes if they want anything more than the absolute minimum to stay alive. And prices for these items are usually more expensive than in life on the outside. That's thanks in part to a 9% commission charged by the Virginia Department of Corrections. In Virginia, being incarcerated is expensive. And even with inmate work programs, it's not really possible to earn enough to cover the costs. Inmates can make 45 cents per hour, or about $72 a month. So who covers the cost of their incarceration? Often, it's their families, who can barely make ends meet themselves. Last year, Virginia's General Assembly organized a work group to study fees inside state prisons. They delivered a 50-page report called Reduction or Elimination of Costs and Fees Charged to Inmates in State Correctional Facilities. Well, the report called for the elimination of fees for phone calls and video calls, that these were really important for inmates to connect with their families and make them less likely to offend when they get back out. The report also called for the elimination of upcharges at the prison commissaries, and an increase in how much the state spends on prisoner meals so that inmates don't need to use the commissary so much. Well, in this year's General Assembly session, lawmakers introduced some bills to implement those changes. Later in the episode, we'll talk with Delegate Irene Shin. She explains how these bills have been received in the General Assembly and what comes next. But first, we talk with Fran Bolin. She's the Executive Director at Assisting Families of Inmates, which provides visitation and support services to families of the incarcerated. She was one of the stakeholders in that working group report, and she breaks down the report's findings and recommendations.
1: The work group was legislation last year, Senate Bill 441 and House Bill 665 that were then turned into a directive to the Department of Corrections to convene a work group to look comprehensively at fines and fees and charges that are represented in the State Department of Corrections.
2: I wanted to focus kind of specifically on the the communications and commissary fees that inmates face in prison. I was curious if you could kind of give us an idea of what it's like right now to communicate with families and loved ones while incarcerated. What does communication with the outside world look like and what are its costs?
1: Yeah, so uh, communications, actually the work study was divided into three separate subcommittees and those are communications, commissary, and then financial fines and fees. Communications covered the telephone system, our tablet system, and video visitation with family and friends. With the telephones, and of course all of this is subject to your security level and your status in the facility, but essentially I believe that phones are available 14 hours per day. Especially at the lower levels. Our current telephone rates are four cents a minute. At a cost of four cents per minute, a 20 minute phone call would be about 82 cents. And every 90 days, the Department of Corrections pays $250,000 for the licensing and software fees associated with that system. So a million dollars a year.
2: For many listeners, maybe listening to this, four cents. A minute does not sound a lot for example if you're calling on the phone i'm just curious could you break down a little bit further like how are they paying this cost and how much money do they make and what is what does that burden of like four cents a minute on a phone look like
1: well most of our communications in virginia are paid for by the outside family and friends and so those costs are borne by folks in the community if we were looking at what incarcerated individuals make. It's my understanding that there are three scales of employment, unskilled, which make maybe a max of $43 per month, semi-skilled individuals who can make up to $56 a month, and then skilled workers within the facilities who can make up to $72 a month. So obviously, in the scope of all that we may need inside, um, those amounts are very modest.
2: Another thing I noticed in the report that it was pretty interesting to me is that they highlighted the link between communication and rehabilitation. Um, The idea that communication with family and loved ones is like a very strong benefit and improves outcomes once someone leaves being incarcerated. I'm curious, could you expand on that idea of that link between communication and rehabilitation?
1: Yeah, and I'd say that that's one of the very basic tenets that we work by and under here at AFOI, and that's always been our belief. We started in 1978 with volunteers and and personally owned vehicles to take family members to facilities for contact visitation, and obviously we have grown since that time, Um, but any connection that is provided between a family, However, you may define those folks to yourself. Um, So could be close friends, but whoever is your support system, both that family uh, in the community and the children and the incarcerated individual, we believe are going to do better throughout the period of incarceration, staying in touch with their loved ones on the outside and knowing what's going on with the family, still feeling involved, still feeling like they're able to parent and be part of, you know, the family unit is really important, but at reentry, it's it's pretty critical because there are a lot of barriers and obstacles that people will come out and face as they try to successfully reenter, and it is your family or your support system that's really going to help you get through those times, whether it be any additional supervision, probation and parole obligations. Or getting to a job interview, housing. You know, there are so many things that family is relied upon to help with.
2: Moving further onto like the commissary, um, I was curious could you explain for those who don't know, like what the role of a commissary is in a prisoner jail? Like what is sold? What is it used for?
1: Yeah. So the commissary is essentially the store within the facility where incarcerated individuals can buy additional toiletries or technology potentially, or additional foodstuffs, including snacks and drinks and those kinds of things. The commissary provider with the state right now works with the Department of Corrections to supply the needed goods. Within the past year, the commissions on those goods has moved from 10% to nine and a half. It is now 9%. The department has worked to also centralize the commissary warehouse to try to bring down costs there too. Within the fee study, we really looked at the items that are being provided and their cost as compared to what you and I would pay if we drove to Kroger or Food Lion, keeping in mind what incarcerated individuals make if they're working inside and then what families have to subsidize within the commissary system. And a big piece of that, we're looking at what the drivers are to commissary. Probably the largest chunk there is the actual food service within the department.
2: And just for clarification, by the food service, you mean like the meals that they provide, like the breakfast, lunch, and dinner they provide to the inmates. Could you remind us what the the cost is per meal per person? How much the, the Virginia Department of Corrections pays for the meals?
1: I believe that the current cost is $2.20 per day per incarcerated individual. The recommendation was to move that amount to $4 per day per individual with the thinking that the more people are well-fed and receiving the right nutrients at their meals, the less of a driver it would be to commissary to compensate for those things and their hunger.
2: Mm, Yeah, and I I guess one more question for people who don't know. So there's a 9%, currently a 9% commission on the items sold in the commissary. What what is that money going towards?
1: The commissary fund funds several things currently. It funds our chaplain services here in Virginia. It funds the inmate cable television services. Those are probably the two largest amounts out of that fund. Uh, AFOI receives a portion of those funds to operate our visitation services um, and support services to families. They have a new inmate coding pilot program, and then really the balance kind of goes back to the facilities themselves for recreational equipment for the incarcerated population, for the barbershop and the beauty school supplies, as well as washers, dryers, microwaves, and popcorn machines. Um, So it really feeds back into the facilities for the incarcerated population directly or to services that benefit family and friends.
2: I wanted to focus on like the fiscal impact of the recommendations of this work group because they suggest among the various recommendations like some of the major ones were. Eliminating the costs and fees through communications um, increasing spending per meal per person and eliminating state commissions on this commissary sales so. Of course, that is like a big fiscal impact for funding that are used for these various like amenities within the these prisons so i'm curious. Could you give an overview of the fiscal impact and where would the money come from instead? What were the suggestions?
1: Yeah, I believe in total, the work group estimated a fiscal impact of somewhere between $27 and $28 million. If we looked at the recommendations or responses from the Department of Corrections, there are additional costs. And I think what was difficult for all of us is that we don't know the true expenses of some of these things. And so calculations based on revenue or profit don't really get us to how much it it costs to implement the service and to keep the service going on a continuing basis. So I believe if we added in what the DOC would need to move these things to no cost, it would be probably an additional $10 to $15 million, if I am reading correctly. So a large impact. And all of this was proposed to come out of the general fund for all of us as taxpayers.
2: Yeah, I was wondering, could you uh, break down a little bit more like the pros and cons of the taxpayer funded model? The way I'm thinking of it now, like the pros being, then the burden isn't falling specifically on families who are maybe struggling the most, but then on the same side, there's more of a um, vulnerability to state budget cuts, and then maybe that consistency of service might be uh, more difficult to maintain. Um, What are your thoughts on that?
1: I, I think your question highlights the two primary viewpoints, uh, and I would add a half or a third one. Um, obviously, we understand the impacts that are placed on families in order to stay connected with their loved ones. And I can only speak to our services here at AFOY, but what we consistently try to do is drive down those costs to family and friends. We have always believed in a family investment model, but it is not to be the primary driver of funds uh, recognizing the situation that they are facing. So when you look at these massive systems and you understand collectively the amounts that we're talking about, yes, you want the families not to shoulder or burden the extent and the totality of this cost. As you have said, Putting these things out into the general fund does put them at risk each year for sustainability. And as we all continue to grow and expand, and again, I can only speak to our services, but for instance, our video visitation program that operates with the state is only three years old. We have not stopped expanding since we've started implementation. We unexpectedly had this in pre-COVID, and it has just continued to grow. The Department of Corrections has received an additional $3 million ARPA funding grant to continue to really build out a pretty comprehensive, one of the most state comprehensive uh, infrastructures for video visitation that, um, that I know about, uh, having studied this for a couple of years now. And in that way, we believe that we're able to continue driving down costs while increasing access because of the uncertainty of general fund dollars in a sustainable way. And the last concern there that we would have would be around the piece I touched on before is not really knowing the full expenses. And for those of us that work with this system each and every day, how these things would be operationalized within the institutions if they were not fully funded. Say that DOC was extremely transparent in their provision of um, items and data to the state-level work group, and that we all recognize how large these issues are, and that a four-month study just highlighted how extensive and how big these issues are and, you know, that it's definitely worth continuing study for all of us to improve the systems here in Virginia for family and friends and the incarcerated population.
0: That was Fran Bolin, Executive Director at Assisting Families of Inmates. After a short break, we talked more about how some of those work group recommendations made their way to the floor of the General Assembly. you are listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for changing Virginia. You can visit us online at bolddominion.org. And I want to tell you, we are looking for good ideas to cover in future episodes. If you've ever had a question about state politics, just something that didn't make sense, and you just want somebody to help explain it to you, please let us know. Shoot us an email at bolddominion@virginia.edu. at Anyway, you can always find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are served up. Go ahead and subscribe. Hey, leave us a nice review while you're there. Bold Dominion is a member of Virginia Audio Collective, featuring more than two dozen podcasts at virginiaaudio.org. And we're back. In the second half of today's show, we continue our discussion about prison fees in Virginia. And we're joined by Delegate Irene Shin, telling us what's happening inside the General Assembly. Shin sponsored a bill eliminating some costs and fees inside local jails. Meanwhile, in the state Senate, Jennifer Boisco sponsored a bill eliminating communication costs in state prisons. Both bills failed in the Republican-majority House of Delegates. Seems the working group's recommendations are not going to happen this year. Shin breaks down the obstacles her legislation faced in the General Assembly, as well as some distinctions between state prisons and local jails.
3: So I've been long concerned about the industrial prison complex and the way that our local jails are structured, allow for so much opacity in the way that they make profits. Um, And it was a similar issue that was happening both at the state level and the local level. And so I really wanted to concentrate on the local level because one, there was a lot of folks who were already working on the state level. Um, But two, a lot of the times for folks who are in jails, they have not yet been convicted and they're just awaiting trial. And so for these folks to also be exploited in this way seems, you know, maybe particularly
2: heinous. Mm. Yeah, and you mentioned um, opacity of profits, which was leading into my next question because there was also a work group report on local jails, but it ran into a a few more roadblocks than the one on um, state prisons. I was curious, could you summarize what happened there if you know? Sure. Um, so HB ten fifty
3: three, I think last year was my bill. And that bill was turned into a work group. Um, and so we required a number of stakeholders to come together to come back to us with recommendations on how do we address the price gouging that's happening in local jails. The work group ultimately was essentially a failure, right? They failed to produce a report that had consensus from the stakeholders who were a part of the work group. The work group consisted of folks who were like your sheriffs, um, who are often the folks that are on the front lines uh, in the jails, but also had a number of advocate organizations. And it also included the regional um, the regional board for local jails. And so when I say that they were a failure, I mean that they like really weren't able to work together. Some of it was I think intentional like stonewalling, they wouldn't show up to meetings that they would be prevented from having quorum. And obviously a quorum is necessary for any of these bodies to be able to do their business. In some other ways, they provided documentation that was asked for that was completely redacted, rendering the document actually effectively useless. So for example, I know some of the shares provided documentation that was so badly redacted that we didn't understand and had no visibility into what were the profits that they were making, what were the commission structures in which they were getting incentives from their vendors, um, or with whom were they doing business, right? So I think during that jail work group process, they were actually able to uncover this sort of like next heinous thing that's happening, which is that local jails and their vendors are selling private persons private personal data um, around who are you calling? Where's that call being received? um, What are those phone numbers and selling that data, which is not only a breach of privacy for the person who's incarcerated, but also for the folks who are receiving the phone calls, right? It's um, none of it makes any sense. And for them to come to the table with such little forthcomingness and willingness to have a conversation about transparency was really disappointing and frustrating for me.
2: You're kind of like well known in the house for when you are speaking, like showing demonstrations and visualizations of the candy and snacks that you can find in these commissaries and comparing those prices with what you would find outside of jails. We talked about this earlier in an earlier interview about the state prisons, but I was curious if you could elaborate further on the costs and prices that you find inside of jails since those are, they are a little bit different. Sure. So one of my favorite examples to use is a single
3: packet of (laughs) mail. Um, so at the Arlington Commissary, a single packet of mayo costs $1.25. And of course, this is Duke's brand, right? So you're not going to get Duke's brand of mayonnaise at the Arlington County Jail, but you still shouldn't have to pay $1.25 for it, right? That's the takeaway. You know, and if you go to Target, if you and I went to Kroger and bought a variety pack of oatmeal, right? Like Quaker's oatmeal, um, you and I might pay something like three bucks three bucks and 50 cents, maybe um, this same box of variety pack oatmeal at the Arlington commissary costs $8 and 50 cents, right? So you're talking about a two X, three X, sometimes four X markup on some of the items that, that are being sold there. And it's not just about the goods that you can buy. Cause some of the stuff is just like basic essentials, right? We're talking about bars of soap or shampoo or toothbrushes, um, you know, and, and to have, markups on things that should be basic commodities for a person to, you know, sort of maintain their dignity while incarcerated is so incredibly important but it's not just the goods it's also the services there are some places you know where a phone call if you're in jail 15 minutes on of a phone call can cost you a dollar thirty cents like Richmond City jail and um, if you're unfortunate enough to be incarcerated in a local jail like in the Rappahannock jail you might pay something like 14 dollars and thirty cents for that same 15 minute phone call right and so we're seeing not just items that you purchased at the commissary being, marked up a kajillion dollars, but also the services like phone calls or video visitations, especially during the pandemic, you know, these jails and prisons and state prisons, they were all under lockdown. So physical in-person visitations were barred and prohibited to, you know, make sure that the population inside were staying safe, but to then also say, we're not going to allow people to come visit. And if you want to do a video visitation, it's going to cost you $12 for a 20 minute call.
2: I'm curious, like moving on to your, the bill that you presented in this, um, this year's General Assembly, I was curious, could you just like break down what the components of it were? Sure.
3: So the bill that I introduced this year, HB 2039, was pretty similar, if not exact, to the same bill that I carried last year, HB 1053, before it was converted into a Section 1 bill that mandated the work group. A couple of the elements of this bill, one is limiting The profit margin that a jail and a sheriff can make on this goods that they sell at the commissary, Um, it would have been priced at 10% of the maximum. So if if you and I were able to go to Kroger to buy this box of oatmeal um, for $3.50, The jail could sell that box of oatmeal for a 10% markup of whatever the regional cost of that product is, understanding that there are discrepancies in the way costs are in Virginia versus maybe in Admiral County, right? It also allowed for free phone calls for folks who were incarcerated. And we also tried to ensure that the proceeds that were being made from the commissions um, or their incentives from the vendors were going back to be reinvested in programs that helped the inmates
2: yeah could you explain for people who weren't following this like what obstacles did it face in the house I guess specifically it was laid on the table so could you explain what that also means yes totally so um yes the
3: bill was laid on the table (laughs) which is like the nice term of killing a bill and essentially you know, there are procedural differences to just defeating a bill and laying it on the table. Um, Lay on the table effectively kills the bill, but procedurally, it leaves an opening for it to technically be picked up off the table at a later date before crossover. And so it's, you know, procedurally keeps it alive, but effectively dead. I think some of the obstacles we faced coming into this session for this bill was that, one, the work group had failed to produce the recommendations that, you know, we really wanted to understand. I feel heartened that there was consensus from the members of the committee that, you know, hey, we actually want to understand better. We want to understand the data. We want to understand the numbers for how much exactly are you profiting, right? And where is that money going? If you go back and watch that subcommittee hearing, there was a deputy sheriff, I think from Norfolk, who came and said, you know, they spent more than a million dollars in programs for the incarcerated folks at their jail. But according to their budget that they have to disclose, it said zero dollars were used in programs. And so my question is, is which one is telling the truth, right? Does the budget reflect where those funds were actually spent, or is what you're telling me true? Because um, in a number of places, um, I I won't name names in terms of counties and localities, but there are a number of places where some of these commissions that they're making from the vendors are going to pay deputy sheriff's year-end bonuses. I think the the origin story of how this happened, right? How did we allow profiteering to first enter into local jails in Virginia is a story that goes back to 2013 when a delegate um, introduced this bill. And that was the first time that we, as a General Assembly, permitted sheriffs to make profits on the items that they were selling in their jails. I'll read it to you exactly what they added in in 2013, actually, um, because I think it's really interesting. The line that they added in to code in 2013 with Delegate Stolly's bill was, any other profits may be used for the general operation of the sheriff's office. Whereas previously, what it used to say was the net profits from the operation of such store that are generated from the inmates' accounts shall be used within the facility for educational, recreational, or other purposes for the benefits of the inmates, as may be prescribed by the sheriff. Right? So you're like, great. Programs? I'm all for it. But then when they added in that sort of sneaky line of Any other amount of money can be used for the general operation of our sheriff's office. That's when you started to see the stuff kind of go haywire. This is a big source of funding for them. Like they need this revenue. But the way that they defend literally price gouging incarcerated people and their families is to say, hey, we're spending this money back in programs that benefit the incarcerated folks, right? And And I actually love that. If we're spending money to help them re-enter as successful members of our community, if we're helping them re-enter with college education or high school diplomas or or workforce training, I am all about that, right? And so I think next year, what we'll probably do is just remove that piece of code that they entered in 2013. We're going to say, great, like keep the funding fine, but like only for the benefit of programs that directly help the folks that you're incarcerating. And so when you're saying, hey, like, not only are we going to be price gouging a captive market within a local jail, that impact is felt not just on the disproportionately black and brown population who are behind bars, but also their families who are at home, who are often women, disproportionately black and brown women, and disproportionately low income black and brown women, right? And so when we're talking about who's feeling the brunt of this, and who's actually the one funding these UN deputy sheriff's bonuses, I want to get to a solution where it's not women and it's not black and brown women and it's not incarcerated people, right? If there is a funding problem where our localities need to be fully funding our sheriffs and their jails, like that is a burden that they need to figure out and work their budget for, but not something like they can pass off to the folks that they're keeping incarcerated.
2: This is not like necessarily the end of this topic. There is the possibility to allocate these funds for the Department of Corrections through the budget process in the General Assembly. I was curious, could you explain that strategy further and How effective do you think it will be this year? sure so one of the things that we did with our bill was we submitted a budget
3: amendment for 64 million dollars because by our estimates um, and again all just like sort of the best guess that's how much we think that local jails are profiting on an annual basis through these commission fines and fees we put in a 64 million dollar budget amendment to try and say hey we understand this is going to leave you in a lurch if we were to take this away from you and so as a as a general assembly as a state legislator i'm saying i see that that's going to hurt you and i want to make you whole where i can because like that it's true right? If you're used to operating this budget and raising this money and having this revenue that a sheriff can literally turn up and down based on what their other projected budget is going to look like, you have total autonomy over your own budget. And I get that that gives... Sheriffs, a lot of pause when they're like, this is a revenue stream that is going to be taken away from me. I get it. Right. And so I wanted to make them whole. But also, it's a $64 million budget amendment. And like, I can think of a kajillion different ways that we should, we could spend $64 million. And I would like to see localities take on that burden of making their budgets whole and fully funding the needs in the jails and for the programs of their incarcerated folks. This is actually interesting because it's, I think it tells us the story of where we're going moving forward. I'm optimistic about what's happening, what's happened on the Senate side for the DOC phone calls. There's also a lot happening on the federal level in terms of the FCC regulating the cost of calls in jails, right? So I think even without legislation coming from us, we'll hopefully see a lot of immediate relief for these families and for those who are incarcerated. The one silver lining that came out of the bill this year, even though it died, was again this consensus that there is something wrong with the way that local jails are Profiting off of the folks that they have incarcerated. I think that's been a bipartisan consensus last year when HB 1053 made it out of the session and was you know, a section one bill that mandated a work group. It was a bipartisan bill that passed our House chamber and the Senate chamber on bipartisan lines. And so to think that there is some consensus, some acknowledgement that like, this isn't really working the way that we intended it to. I feel optimistic about that fact. And hopefully we can come back next year with something that will get across the line that will appeal to everyone's sort of common sense and hopefully their compassion.
0: Thanks to Delegate Irene Shin and Fran Bolin for speaking with us today. My name's Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Our producer and editor this week was Alana Bittner. You can find us online at bolddominion.org. And don't forget to subscribe. It's just a click away.